AI won't take your job, someone using AI will. You may have heard this phrase last year. If you want a head start into 2024, join the free masterclass on AI and training design, organized by a new spring in collaboration with leading AI and learning researcher Dr. Philippa Hartman. On Tuesday, February 13, we'll dive headfirst into leveraging AI for designing your training. Visit thenewspring.com or the link in the show notes. Hope to see you there. AI is a fantastically powerful tool for learning, and you have to use it. Or so everyone is telling you. But what are you going to use it for? And how is that going to help your learners? Welcome to The Learning Hack, a podcast about the people and technologies creating the future of learning. I'm John Hellman. Now, guess what? Learning is cool. Learning is cool. cool. Learning is cool. Learning is fun. Knowledge is power. Knowledge. Education. My guest this time on The Learning Hack thinks that it's really important to know what problem you're trying to solve with AI to use it properly. The problem has to come first. That's why we've called this episode AI, the product and the problem. She's one of the smartest people around on the conference circuit, and she has a lot to say about AI and its use for learning. Kate Fitzgerald, Head of Fact, who is she? Hack Facts. Aikla Vanauskaita is the award-winning director of the learning innovation consultancy, Nodes. Her expertise in learning, behavioral sciences, and technology has made her a sought-after edtech advisor by top startups and blue-chip companies with her work spanning AI, XR, mobile, platforms, blended learning programs and more, she understands the ground zero of how AI is ushering in entirely new ways of doing things in the world of learning and edtech. Everyone wants to know how to use AI wisely and effectively now. It's seen as the key new technology to drive business growth and greater productivity. Aigler is one of the top people talking to corporates about using it for learning, and I wanted to hear what she's telling them. I also wanted to hear about her own pretty remarkable journey from Lithuania to Harvard to the UK. Listen in. it's great to have you on the podcast. Welcome to The Learning Hack. Thanks for having me, John. I have to thank Kevin Elster for introducing us at a dinner he held in London, following which we had a conversation and decided that we wanted to focus this episode on the product and the problem, which is the title of this podcast. Can you unpack the meaning of that for us? Uh, but first, to start with, a confusion of mine about this I've got to own up to. Um, I was really interested yesterday to watch you discussing product mindset with friend of the podcast, Miles Runham on YouTube. I think we're going to have him back on next year as well. But I'm being, uh, to be completely honest about this, I'm not sure exactly what you both mean when you talk about product. And in fact, I've been talking to Miles for, for almost a year about um, product mindset on and off. And I think I've been smiling and nodding, but I don't really understand uh, the product. Is it a piece of learning content, a learning system, a learning solution? or all or any of the above? Uh, it certainly can be. Uh, it can be either of the above, an actual piece of learning software, a learning solution, a content offering. But at the higher level, when I talk about product in L&D, 
I mean adopting the so-called product mindset in L&D. And the product mindset is a way of approaching problems by focusing on the customer or the user or the learner, however you want to call it. Because here's the thing, in workplace L&D, one of the biggest, most acute, most common problems that L&D professionals try to solve is engagement. And this comes up again and again in, in conversations, in surveys, in uh, vendor pitches. And people don't engage with a lot of what L&D is offering. And then we end up in a situation where we throw lots of stuff at the wall. Um, here's gamification. Here's VR. Here's a video library like, uh, like Netflix. Here's an Nudge Engine. And we're hoping that it will finally engage people in learning. But what the product mindset suggests is that we should start with the user. Who is our target audience? What problems are they facing? How can you solve that problem for them and go from there? So going back to your original question, the answer may be that people need actionable learning content or a better system that targets that content or a learning experience that inspires them or a support system that motivates them. But whatever the solution is, it needs to address a real problem. I always say that relevance is the best engagement tool in learning. And it seems common sense, but this user-first approach is the opposite of the content-first approach that L&D often leads with. Um, so starting with what people need to learn and then trying to find the most palatable way to feed them that information. It's a bit like broccoli dipped in chocolate, if you don't mind me using that analogy. Mm -hmm. um, and this is why when we started discussing me coming onto the podcast and talking about learning technology and AI in particular, I suggested talking about it from the perspective of the product and the problem. Because now that we have this very powerful tool at our disposal, being deliberate about what we use it for is ever more important. If we don't understand what problems we are solving for people, we will end up using AI to scale what hasn't worked before. And at the, at the human level, it will be a missed opportunity with a significant cost to, to people's careers, to their professional development and so on. So when the tool can make a difference at so many levels uh, in a learning function and can potentially help solve so many problems, it's tempting to use it for the problems we have already been solving instead of rethinking whether they still need to be solved. And um, I understand this is quite vague, so let me make this more specific. Um, for example, there is a particular type of an e-learning course, which gives you some information about a skill and then asks you multiple choice questions to decide how you should use that skill. So for example, a branching scenario about having difficult conversations. I think we, we all know what I'm talking about, this, yeah, this, yeah. this type of course. Um, and in this instance, you can use AI to help you come up with the questions and flesh out the scenario, sure. But you can also reconsider whether you still need this kind of interaction in the first place. Because these kinds of scenarios have been a proxy, only a proxy for actual skill practice, actual skill development. Um, because they are, they're very structured, they're constrained, you're not answering a natural language, they're leading. So they, there are a lot of problems with them, but they have been the best that we had with the technology that we had to be able to scale that kind of skill development for people. And if you think about the underlying problem, which is 
people not being able to have difficult conversations um, in, in at, at work, then creating an actual natural language conversation simulator would be a much better use of AI. And that's what I mean when I say that you need to start with a problem, not the tool. Okay, yeah, so that that's pretty understandable. And I'd say I sort of had this heard this before. And um, in marketing, we call this solutioneering. When someone comes along and says, um, I, I need you to do me a brochure about this, that, and the other. And we say, well, how do you know it's a brochure? How do you know it's not a, a billboard you want or a TV ad or, or or whatever? So basically what you're saying is that you start with the problem and then perhaps select the, the product you need to use after that. So how does AI come into this equation then? Um, because as I... As I said, AI is is a tool that can do so many things. And if you're not careful, you're going to start solving the problems that you have yourself as a learning professional, as a learning designer, whatever, one, 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 one of those professions, oh, and okay, not the actual yeah. problems that that the user that the user has. Yeah. Meaning that if a person uh, the, the problem may be, say, a performance problem. Uh, someone needs to develop a skill to be able to lead a project in a better way or lead their people in a better way. And uh, the, this whole conversation uh, about AI is becoming even more relevant here because this is the kind of technology which is a general technology, meaning that we can use it either for skill development or for content development or for process optimization or anywhere. So we really need to zero in into exactly what problem we're solving with it. Oh, okay. Yeah, my slight confusion there was that I, I thought I heard you say that you could actually use AI to help you choose which solution would fit the problem. But was that just a misunderstanding on my part? Yeah, I, th I think I think so. Yeah, oh, okay. that's, that's, yeah. That's, not, that's certainly not, not what I meant okay yeah. yeah but ai definitely widens your options speeds up your ability to to produce something so it comes all the more important to to focus on the product yeah yeah sorry yeah. the problem and, and the, the thing is the product. yeah <laughs> exactly and the thing is that because this technology is uh, really quite powerful um if you if you use it to solve the wrong problem you're gonna go way in the wrong direction like not a oh, little okay. bit but yeah. just that's that they, there is a function of just how generalist and how powerful the technology is and how how deliberate you need to be in using it, I think. Yeah. So if you've suddenly got a really powerful new car that can go a lot faster than your previous old banger, um, if you don't get the directions right, you can end up going further in the wrong direction than if you stuck with your old banger and poodled about. Exactly. Sorry, I'm trying to make it really simple just because of my own confusions. And, and experience has told me that if I have a confusion, other people have it too. Go for it. In your career so far, Igla, you've worked with both providers and corporates. And I've got a sense that the, the product mindset language is sort of coming from the, the, the provider, from the vendor end, rather than, you know, out of the world of kind of training and coaching and so on. Um, and you work both sides. There's a lot of focus currently on how well that interface functions between buyers and sellers in this market space. What, ref <clears throat> what reflections do you have on that question, particularly as someone whose first degree was in economics, which I think is really interesting? 
yeah, it, is, uh, it, do, it does come in handy. Um, there is, I think, quite a painful distinction between what works and what sells, ultimately. And this may take us back to your first question about the, the product and the problem. Buyers often don't know what problem they're solving. And they don't take the time to understand the organizational context of it, um, perhaps its root cause and component parts. And to top it off, um, they often don't even have a good grasp on how people learn and how they definitely don't learn. <laughs> and given this backdrop, um, I feel that buyers are therefore susceptible to oversimplified solutions that promise to take away their own pain of handling complexity rather than the pain felt by the users, whatever, learners, employees, whatever you want to call them. So yeah. you often end up in this paradoxical situation where some vendors are doing the right thing. They're being careful about the claims that they make. They are developing sophisticated products that look at um at, at the solution holistically, not as a silver bullet that we're going to give you this and it's going to solve all of your problems. And they lose the sale to someone who ticks the buzzword boxes and quite often uses some scientific findings stretched way beyond their remit uh, to prove efficacy. Um, I've, I've been seeing that uh, quite a lot, actually. Um, and since our industry also has a problem with measurement, we have a situation where buyers often cannot possibly separate the wheat from the chaff. And I remember once seeing water bottles marketed as gluten-free water. Yeah, or hydration. Sometimes. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's, it's gluten-free water. That's, oh. that, that's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, sometimes our industry feels a bit like that. Yeah. I think to, to slightly complicate that picture as well, um, my experience of working in product companies is that you know you have kind of have this distinction between suites and point solutions where you know people will buy into a, a huge great suite which has kind of lms lxp um you know social features everything you can imagine within it and uh, the buyer potentially imagines that's going to take away any problem or solve any problem they have and then they're just kind of a few months into implementation and they realize it doesn't do something they, they really need. So they have to get a point solution. But other stuff comes in with the point solution because all the providers want to be big suites. Nobody really wants to be a specialist for the rest of their lives. That's not the way to go and uh, attract investment and so on. I, that's kind of my feeling about some of the confusion um, within that sort of uh, buyer-seller in interface. Does that resonate at all with you? Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, and I think this... Pretty much the, the, the same issue comes up here as well, that if you don't quite know exactly what you're trying to do, uh, you're going to be overwhelmed by choice. And even if you have everything you need on the menu, it is about configuring, config, configuring that LMS or another piece of software in a way that actually works for you, for your organization, for your use case. And I think, uh, yeah, again, just giving buying something that does everything it's uh it, it may seem like the most straightforward solution but it's it's really not yeah and you, you talked uh just now there about how people will kind of stretch bits of science and so on to um to, to to fit the product features of their particular suite or 
uh, specialist product or whatever. Um, and that sounds to me like thought, thought leadership, um, you know, which I think hides a multitude of sins. And, you know, I may have committed a few of them myself. So I do thought leadership. Um, how how healthy do you think the debate is in, in terms of, you know, vendors advising their buyers and potential buyers, dragging in bits of learning theory, bits of neuroscience and all the rest of it? Are we really furthering understanding in the in this dialogue, or is there a lot of disinformation in there? Um, yeah, that's that's a good question and something that I have been debating with quite a lot of people. The fact that um, sometimes it seems because uh, let me pedal back a bit here. Uh, learning and development is the kind of field, at least in the UK or, or in Europe, where you don't have a set career path to get into it, yeah. meaning that usually you don't have you don't get a degree in learning and development. Um, yeah. We have obviously CIPD and, and things like that. Um, you don't have a graduate program. Um, so it's it's really a lot of people usually fall into this field. Yeah. And I th I feel like there is there are a lot of unknown unknowns because there is no almost foundational knowledge that we all agree that every learning professional should know, yeah. and that gets us into the situation that you're talking about, where a lot of education uh, is happening is is being done by vendors, mm. and and a lot of that I think is useful uh, because. People who are creating these products, they think about uh, products meaning learning software. Uh, they think about learning a lot, and they know about learning a lot. And I think there is a lot to learn from them. However, they also have have an agenda, and they they massage potentially like not not saying that all all of them, but obviously when when you're promoting something, you you want to highlight certain certain features or uh, potential impacts over others. And I think this would be all good if we assume that the buyer side had the, um, the knowledge to discern those claims, because mm -hmm. then it would be a fair game. Sort of, I, I tell you what I think about your problem and what solution you should, you should have, and then you have your own point of view, and then we meet in the middle and we hash it out. The problem is that unless you have a strong point of view about the problem you're trying to solve, about what kind of solutions might work, sort of reducing the scope of your exploration in the learning technology market, unless you are in that space and you also know what definitely does not work, uh, you may be really swayed by those claims. And especially when it comes to scientific claims, um, about how if you if you use this medium, uh, that's going to help people learn uh, that much better, or that percentage uh, increase your like, knowledge retention by 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 that by a certain percentage, or because there were some or quite quite a lot of experiments that showed that nudges were um, effective in influencing behaviors. Now, if we just deploy a nudge engine then that's going to solve all of your learning problems because before you have only been doing content but what you haven't been doing is notifying people about that content like that that, that sort of very simplistic interpretation so i think i think that's that's the root cause of it that there is no agreed um 
foundational knowledge here. So it, I think it's not the it's not so much the vendor's fault. I think that there a lot of them are doing good work. Some of them are not, but it is it is about uh, a discourse, and this discourse is not uh, insightful. Discourse isn't quite possible when some people can cannot participate in it. Pretty much. Yeah, I think that's so interesting, um, and I, I'm slightly bite my, biting my tongue on the subject of thought leadership because I don't want to kind of give away too much of you know, um, how how you would work on that. But it, uh, as I, I've come from this from a, a PR background, um, I, I've seen a lot of thought leadership programs where the idea is, and I won't say necessarily whether they're mine or not, where, where the idea is basically to foreground problems um, in learning and development generally under the rubric of a kind of general discussion about, let's just talk about the industry, let's not talk about our product, but to foreground the problems there for which you're, um, your products have a solution or, or which your solution has a solution um, and it's kind of about getting people in a in a state of mind perhaps involving fear and you know other negative emotions which will make make them take those problems more seriously than they might other problems and it's quite possible that actually there are other problems are more serious in in, in actuality uh, and then at, at, the, at the end of the wonderful discussion about the state of the industry Lo and behold, you have a product that kind of solves it all and um, everything's hunky-dory. So I think I've already given far, away far too many of the, the secrets of thought leadership. Maybe we should move on. The Learning Hack podcast is supported by Learning News, the learning sector's newswire. Rob and his team are good friends of the podcast, and we really value the help and advice we've had from them. And they do a great job. For the very latest news from around the learning sector, for interviews with learning leaders, the latest from learning sector vendors and features on workplace learning, go to learningnews.com. I want to talk a little bit, little bit, uh, takes back to that video um, where you're interviewed with Miles and you were a little unwilling at the time, and this was kind of quite, lot, quite earlier in the year, around middle of the year, uh, to get into the subject of generative AI, because you said it was too soon to talk about it, which I absolutely respect as a point of view. Everybody was still kind of getting used to the idea of it. Uh, I know you've talked to and listened to a lot of people since then about AI. Um, and I also aware that we have a, a release coming up in between us recording this interview and when I can publish it out that, that might change everything. But with, with those caveats in place, what what can you say about generative AI in particular now and how is it it's affecting L&D? Long question, sorry. Uh, yeah, that's going to be a long answer as well. Good, um, good. <laughs> so the conversation that you're, you are referring to, it took place in March 2023, March, I think. Yeah. So that's, yeah, yeah it's, that's, that's a decade in AI years. Um, and that was just around the time that L&D recognized that ChatGPT was not a drill, pretty much. Over half a year later, and AI is the hottest topic on any education and L&D stage. And a few themes are emerging clearly. Uh, the first one is more people are talking about it than using it at scale. Um, a lot of L&D professionals have tried it 
or use it in either a limited capacity at work or only in a personal capacity. Uh, but you would be surprised by how many people are only now taking the first steps. How do I begin is still a very hot question. So just want to situate us um, in this context that although it seems if you go to any conference that people are falling over themselves to advance their AI strategy, um, the absolute majority don't have anything like that yet. Um, the second thing that's, that's become clear from my conversations with various learning leaders is that AI adoption in L&D is largely driven by the organization's AI strategy. It rarely comes from L&D itself. So it's not L&D leading uh, the AI adoption, which is also a helpful perspective when, when we hear a lot of conversations about how L&D should just uh, carry the torch and uh, what it should do with its so with its, its AI strategy it's 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 just a small part of a much bigger organizational strategy and because of the complexities complexities and uh, various uh, considerations of uh, implementing AI at the organizational level obviously L&D cannot be the the first or only department doing it okay. then Another thing which I found interesting but not surprising is that the most popular use case of AI in L&D is content creation. Um, so um, we did a little uh, research survey um, asking a lot of people across the industry about how they used AI, both generative AI and the, what I call regular algorithmic AI. And uh, that that came across really clearly. That's it. and e even anecdotally, if you look uh, across the industry, seemingly every vendor now offers a one-click course creation button. Plenty of learning teams use generative AI for text, image, and video content creation, as well as translations. It's being used both for high-level learning design and for creating things like learning objectives, quiz questions, scripts, and scenarios. So it's it's really when it comes to content creation, it seems to be the primary use case, which is when you think about where L&D spends a lot of its time, that's really not surprising because that's these are the most time consuming tasks, but also what um, co content creation is uh, a, a, a part of uh, a, a huge part of what, what, uh, what L&D does in general. Uh, but yeah, so content creation is... Uh, we, we can actually talk about that, what, what it means uh, to use AI for, for content creation and where, where that might take us and whether that's uh, that fulfills the promise of AI and learning, so to say. So I'm just going to tease that a little bit. Yeah. Um, and uh, if, you, if, if we look at the landscape right now, uh, some generative AI applications and learning are already getting commoditized. So course creation helpers, coaching bots are now quite difficult products to differentiate in the market if you are a startup creating that sort of thing. Um, and generally speaking, a lot of people feel overwhelmed by the variety of AI applications on the market, learning or not, uh, which makes it that much more intimidating to dip your toes in it. It feels like there is just so much to catch up on. Even I personally feel it. If I take a few a few weeks off AI, uh, it's, it's like a whole new world once I dive back in. Um, and yeah, and, and the final point that I that, that came across quite clearly both in our survey and just in pretty much any conversation I'm having with people is that 
almost everyone feels like they are barely keeping up and are always behind. For your listeners, if that's you, um, just know that you're you're not alone. This is a shared feeling. Um, so yeah, so to sum it up, this whole AI and learning field is very unwieldy. Uh, first of all, we have generative AI, which is new and hot. And we have algorithmic or discriminative AI, which has been around for a while in the format of um, adaptive learning, content curation, and, and things like that, matching. Um, then another layer is that we have the term AI being used to discuss both business strategy and the most minute details of content creation, which makes it confusing and difficult to understand its true value in your own context because you have both uh, 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 a copywriter or a learning designer using about, it's talking about AI and learning, and then you have a head of learning or um, a business leader talking about using AI and learning. So it's, it's, it's really quite difficult to parse out that whole conversation it feels like it's a, it's a big blob. Um, and uh, then finally, we have the bigger question about what generative AI is going to do for learning in general. Um, because I personally think that it has the potential to be a revolutionary technology, both for performance support and for skill development. And I wish we talked more about its tutoring, upskilling, and performance support capabilities rather than firing up those content engines. That's such an interesting answer and, and so many different points in there. Just to give a couple of reactions, Told you. <laughs> couple of reactions to that. The, 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 the fact that it's the organization pushing AI, not L&D specifically, is something I think we've, well, I know I've seen before with um, other introductions of new technologies. Um, I, I, I think it kind of happened with things like sort of Slack and Teams coming in and everybody said, oh, yes, this is where we need to, not in the LMS we need to put the learning into to uh, th- those platforms because that's where the users are, be where the users are. But it, it was reactive in terms of L&D. And, and so many other technologies that have come up, um, L&D is late, uh, late in adopting. And there, there has always been a lot of slagging off of L&D because of this, uh, this, this technology lag compared to other parts of the organisation. I, I My view's changed about that. I think, you know, for L&D, it has a lot of other kind of boxes to tick if you like with any new technology because it is it you know responsible for people's personal development it's part of hr where um very focused on the the people function as as we used to say it has to know that this technology is not going to be worse for people than it is good for them um so it and in a way it's not a surprise that the initial reaction has been one of recoil uh on the other hand having said that i had a really experience over the last good experience over the last couple of weeks i went to well good and bad uh i went to one forum um week for last in london uh where a keynote there's a keynote on ai by the end of it everybody is in despondent gloom because it was kind of you know robots going to take over all your jobs put you out of a job you know if you're lucky you'll get you uh universal basic income more likely nothing um and a young 20 something on on the table i was on i was sitting there with um a very experienced uh uh older guru from um from l and d and the very young person the young person was was kind of her eyes were wide with kind of fear and panic and said this is awful you know is this what's going to happen uh and then the the the, the older guy and me shook our head and said no 70 percent of that was bullshit and I, I think there are too many of these you know as a personal 
point. So there are too many of these AI keynotes, which is basically people scaring people about AI. However, the week after, uh, I, I went to a completely other conference in Berlin, which I think was more kind of um, cosmopolitan, should we say. And you you saw at that a far more um, kind of open and engaged and detailed and specific set of conversations about AI. Okay, you know, how can we use it? Where are the benefits or the best ways of using it? Um, none of these as incisive as what you've just given us, but certainly on the way. And, you know, so I did feel cheered that perhaps people are beginning to take it on board and understand it a bit more rather than just kind of completely rule it rule out of court and try to to ban it from the beginning um but did you want to say more about the content creation aspect uh yeah the, the, the content creation aspect is um something that uh, again i recognize that content is necessary uh to support um often necessary most often necessary to support learning and this is it this is not going away it's not shameful to to create content and to use ai to to create content uh if you use it in a in a in a um, in, in a smart way but i do think that we in the industry have a bit of a uh, content addiction problem where it seems that throwing content at anything is the way to go and what AI has done, because that, that's that's the thing. Um, when ChatGPT first arrived, um, and keeping in mind that learning and development, as well as education more broadly, this, this entire learning-related industry, it is very much based on content. A lot of what we do, a lot of what we produce, a lot of how, how we assess is based on, on, on content. And when ChatGPT arrived, uh, we had to ways to go forward. One way to go forward was to use it to create more, more content uh, and, uh, and and pretty much speed up, use all of these powerful capabilities to speed up what, what we've done before. And then the other way would be to stop and think that, okay, so now that content is ubiquitous and is going to become even, even more so uh, as we go forward every, every month, um, it's, it's it becomes more contextual, um, better, more accessible, and so on. So, how do we reimagine our place as as educators uh, in 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 the broadest sense in in any context in schools and in universities and uh, in, in, in workplaces in in that context of ubiquitous content? How do we reimagine our our role? in it. So I think that when I lament the use of content uh, or, or the, the use of AI to produce content, I am I, I, a bit sometimes concerned that we don't think enough. We're sort of like your analogy about a very fast car. We got into that car and we're driving fast, really happy that we now can produce that much content. We can cut our uh, production times uh, by by you know 50 60 80 percent uh but we are not really thinking whether this is something that we should be doing and even at the higher level what's going to happen in a year in two years like what is our job what is our purpose i i, I sometimes go deep with these things as uh, as, as, as you may notice but uh, yes these i think are the more fundamental questions it feels like we are 
as an industry latching onto the first um, low-hanging fruit instead of thinking like, what's uh, what kind of a tree is this? Yeah. So uh, some people say, you know, if we want to uh, move away from kind of throwing content at people and use AI to do that, some people say the important thing that it gives us is the ability to put dialogue into the learning process. So when I say some people, really, I mean Donald Clark, my co-host on Great Minds on Learning. We we, we delivered a, a, a live podcast about um, the theoretical underpinnings of um, generative AI recently. And his strong message from that was, you know, going back to Socrates, uh, learning is about dialogue uh, and about conversation. And this chat GPT thing is basically kind of grown out of what, what's what, what's essentially a bot, uh, a chat bot. Um, we've, we've had those for ages and they've been a bit primitive. Now at last, there's the, the possibility of them being far more sophisticated. It, is that what you're thinking about when you say, let's not just use it to produce more and more bland content? Uh, yeah, exactly. And it's either, uh, the, the again, the bot and the internet, Interface. This is a the general interface that can be used for many purposes. So one of these purposes is, as you say, a dialogue. Perhaps if I am having a conversation, a natural language voice conversation um, with uh, with a bot about something that I'm interested in, it's much like you like having a conversation with someone who is knowledgeable, who is a, who is an expert or has an interesting point of view. So it really makes that knowledge acquisition much more um, personalized, interesting, and something that I can totally imagine that people learn to really enjoy. And actually, this is something that has come up in uh, in in my own research is that a lot of people are using. AI as a um, as a thought partner. So if I if I'm for example as a vendor if I land um, a project which has a, a focus on on a specific subject matter I use AI to help me think through it. So it's not just like I, I Google an article about okay so what are the the negotiation tactics right to to create some sort of negotiations training. I use AI to help me understand what like why some uh, so, some uh, methods work and some don't. What are the what's the new ones? What are the contextual factors? So I'm actually having a conversation with it with, as if it was a knowledgeable uh, expert, and that's a very different. I, I agree with Donald that this is a very different way of relating to content. We are seeking it out and we are getting it in uh, in a way that has not been accessible before. So that's that's one use case for say knowledge acquisition, and obviously that activates all sorts of learning processes, which we don't need to go into that right now. Which passive content consumption does not, um, and uh, the other potential use case uh, of the same chatbot interface is uh, for upskilling. So it's not knowledge acquisition, but it's actually me having. Uh, pr practicing certain skills and the, uh, let's use the term deliberate practice of the chatbot actually enabling me to deliberately practice certain skills. Um, obviously, some of them are conversational, but with its uh, vision vision capabilities, it can it can become much more. It can it will be able to give feedback on a lot of um, skills that are 
not conversation based, so to say. So yeah, I definitely agree that this is this is one of the big things that generative AI is uh, giving us. Yes. We're going to have to close up because of time. Fascinating stuff. And we could talk a lot further about this. But um, before we go, I just talk about your interesting biography. Um, what can you tell us about your journey in the learning industry from Lithuania to Harvard to the UK? Uh, and what particular slant or insight do you think that gives to your view of learning? Um, well, thank you for the question, first of all. This is something that... Uh... Really, I don't get asked about a lot, so this is going to be fun. Um, so before there was Lithuania to Harvard, uh, there had been finance to learning. So I studied economics yeah. and I started out in finance until I realized that I had a deep interest in people and behavior and decided to do that instead. And I vividly remember my quarter life crisis. It was agonizing, but uh, had to be done. And... Uh, once I dipped my toes in the learning and social impact space, which was in the beginning, not workplace learning, um, I realized how woefully unqualified I was and how little my lived experience of formal education mattered. So I chose this field led by a strong sense of purpose. And I realized that my work could not have an impact unless I knew until and unless and, I, and until I knew what I was doing and I could even make things worse if I wasn't careful. So I went to Harvard to study human development and earn my stripes, so to say, and uh, came to the UK and ended up working on a whole variety of learning projects, programs, products, you name it, both in corporate L&D and in the learning B2C space. Um, Looking back, I'm really quite fortunate to have had that kind of exposure because at first it happened accidentally. So yeah, really um, feel quite quite lucky. Um, but I remember how surprised I was that L&D does not measure ROI. As a former financial analyst, that absolutely blew my mind. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, but I haven't abandoned my past life, I would say. I still love Excel. I still love data. I still love frameworks. And as someone who spent years drawing curves and contemplating the societal impact of policies, I like to view learning from that high level lens that what we do in this industry matters for the individuals and the collective, and we should approach our work as such. Good answer. The, um, it, it, along the, the way there, you worked a bit in immersive learning, VR. The, met, the metaverse was big last year, not so much in 2023, kind of fell off a cliff. Do you think it might be due for a resurgence in the new year? Um, I don't know what can knock off AI off its throne <laughs> as, the, as the next big thing. Um, the issue with the metaverse in learning specifically is that more often than not, it's offering a marginal improvement in the experience for a step change in price. It's not a good combo. And it's not solving an obvious problem or at least a problem that people see as particularly painful or if they see it as, as particularly painful, it doesn't solve it in a way that addresses that pain sufficiently. So it's uh, not, not a great combo again. So for learning purposes, people can collaborate in more user-friendly spaces. Frankly, most people just don't love the metaverse as it is right now. And if it resurfaces, I think it will be because of an improvement in the technology that's significant enough to inspire imagination again. 
I think that's a very insightful answer. And it, it kind of makes me surprised you're not working for a VC. <laughs> <laughs> but please stay in our industry because because we need your expertise and everything. Finally, you become well-respected as a thought leader in the industry, but where do you look up to and follow? Um, where do you draw inspiration? Um, that's actually not an easy question to answer. Um, Ethan Mollick comes to mind as someone who prompts me to reflect on education, on, on work, on society, on AI as well, but he's a recent inspiration rather than the main one. And for me, and this is going to be probably... Uh, I, I cannot give you specific names, but it's just that the general approach that I use um, is that inspiration usually strikes me in conversation with other people, and they don't have to be thought leaders. There is something about people asking you questions and you listening to their points of view that sparks ideas. And I love these serendipitous moments on LinkedIn that end up as a conversation or even a coffee. And if I have a question, I also have a circle of people I reach out to to mull over it just for the sake of it, just to discuss that topic or that uh, friction. And uh, I would like to encourage more people to be curious about the people that they connect with, because there is a treasure trove of knowledge and insights in each of our networks. So that would be my um, potentially avoidant answer, but that's that's the honest one. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think it's especially when you're in a kind of a, an emergent space, like you know, learning and AI. There aren't any fixed authorities really, so it's more about a, about talking to a lot of people with a lot of different perspectives, I, I, I suppose, um, and people you know to be kind of you know, not full of bullshit, but um, but who know what they're talking about and compare and contrast. Anyway, thank you very much, Agla, for for coming on the podcast. I, talk to you all day but um we have to keep these things to a reasonable length um thanks again for your time thank you so much john it was a pleasure that's all on the learning hack podcast for this time many thanks to our guest and to our sponsors the learning hack is completely independent and transparently funded by sponsorship if you want to help others find us please like follow rate review and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice or on youtube if you're interested in getting transcripts for these episodes, ad-free listening and bonus content, head over to our Patreon page and help to keep the flame alive. Until next time. Stay curious, learning people.